is the Plant Book Club. Hi, and welcome to the Plant Book Club. My name is Joram. I'm here together with uh, Tegan and Alan, who are at two um, undisclosed locations uh, on other places on the earth where I am not. But we're all coming together virtually here to talk about plant books. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Hi. Yeah, um, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm good. I'm a little bit... Um, actually, I'm, I'm actually fine today. Uh, I also had lots of stuff. We had a little bit of a um, crazy lead up to this episode. Um, we had to postpone a couple of times for different reasons. And then we had some very last minute trouble. But we overcame all of this um, to talk today about the, the book that uh, I picked the last time we spoke. Um, the Drunken Botanist by Amy Stewart. Um, the plants that create the world's great drinks. Um, so it's all about booze and plants and the interface. And we sort of, last week, or last week, last time we talked, we realized that we actually not like the perfect group for this, right? Like I drink a little bit. Tegan, you drink less than I do. And Alan, you don't really drink, right? How was it reading that book? Yeah, I don't drink at all. I mean, I think, I think there's something we can talk about already from the offset that this book is not just for people who drink alcohol. I think there's plenty in it for people who don't drink. I mean, I have now read the book and still have no idea what alcohol is which because I, I don't drink them. So I can't keep in mind which is made with corn and which is made with wheat. But there are so many fascinating bits of information about all these different plants that you don't need to drink. That's That should be said at the offset, I think. Yeah, this book reminded me actually a lot of Fruit of the Sands, like a slightly better version of Fruit of the Sands, because the relationship between humans and alcohol is so long that mm -hmm. basically a history of alcohol is a history of all of humanity's relationship with plants. I actually had exactly that note of like, there was a section where she was talking about, I think it was even, it might have been one of the millets, because millets came up a lot in the, the Fruit of the Sands book. And I was like, this is how you do it. This is how you talk about millets. And I want to hear about millets. Like, yeah, just like a couple pages. <laughs> yes. Ooh, I have a note that I that has to do with Fruit of the Sands in this book and also another book we read. I can't remember which one. But this is the third time we've encountered Vavilov, the botanist, which in Fruit of the Sands, oh. they said he was underappreciated. And I disagree because we've now come across him three times, the Soviet botanist who was punished by Stalin for not believing in Lamarckian evolution. Mm -hmm. So that's that's also kind of one of the, the features of the structure of this book that like at the kind of at the basic underlying structure is discussion about different plants that are used to make alcohol or to drink alcohol in different ways. And we can go through that a bit later, but there's also all these little stories and like small snippets and also recipes for different alcoholic beverages. So there's a lot of kind of like Easter eggs throughout the book of all different things. Yeah, exactly. That's also what I liked about it, that it's like every, so it's, it's separated into a couple of uh, different chapters and, um, the the chapters are organized based on um, sort of first up the the classics so some some like basic uh, um, classical ingredients for drinks like like wheat and corn and um, sort of the grains um, but then it it goes also through um, let me just pull up yeah through 
um, like herbs and spices and flowers and trees, fruits, nuts and seeds. So through different groups of plant things that we consume and how they're related to alcohol. And for each in each of these chapters, it's sorted then by species. And for each species, it's between one and four pages of information. And I think that's a very nice way to quickly go through many different things and learn like fun tidbits left and right about any sort of any plant. Um, and that to me, it, I was surprised how well it read. Like when I, I picked it, picked it up or saw it the first time I read like a few pages and it sounded nice, but um, now reading through um, the entire book, I found that it actually reads quite nicely. Yeah. I thought it was nice. It was well-written I think it would be much better as a reference book than a reading all the way through book. It was kind of a slog, honestly, for, <laughs> to read it all the way through. And I think it would be nice if you were just looking up cocktail recipes and you happened to entertain your dinner guests with the history of that cocktail. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think there was a lot of interesting information, but there was also a lot of information, full stop. Like it was yeah. there's a lot in there. Although I have to say that at one night I read like 150 pages in one go. Um, and although like I, I knew that I sort of had to go through it. Um, um, so, so I had some time pressure there. But I also have to say that I found it um, interesting. I mean, I, I have to say I skipped all of the parts where it was just like a list of different brands or different types of spirit and how they are different from one, one another because I don't care too much about these differences. Like at mm -hmm. one point, it's about like creme de cassis and cassis cream and all of these different types of sort of cream related names. And some of them contain milk products and some don't. Um, stuff like that I skipped. Um, but the stories about the plants, I found them very interesting. It usually starts with a little bit of history um, or some like cultural trivia about the plant. And then it goes into the use of them. And if you are more interested in a plant than in the alcohol, I think you can safely read like the first yeah. two thirds of each um, sort of plant description and uh, leave out the last third if you don't really care about the fact that I mean, somebody fermented there's even, it. There's even sort of some growing notes for at the, at the end of the book for some different plants, like trees and fruits and vegetables that you might be incorporating into your drinks. So it's got quite a range there, I would say. Yeah. What was the most surprising plant you found in there, which you didn't expect? You absolutely would not have predicted to be in a book about drinks. Oh, My favorite kind of anecdote was the one about grains of paradise. And I have no idea what those are in real life. I've never encountered them. But apparently lowland western gorillas eat them in the wild. And in zoos, they don't eat them usually. And so they have a lot of heart problems because these grains of paradise are um, oh. keeping them from suffering from heart disease. They have some sort of anti-inflammatory properties. And so now zoos are working on these projects to feed the Western lowland gorillas these grains of paradise. This is something I like that she would put these kind of um, like small scientific studies in but in a very casual way still so you know like in 2006 a study showed this and this and although it hasn't been shown in humans it's still interesting you know this kind of like interesting links to to the real science happening around these plants i think um 
I mean, once you start reading the book, you realize that they, there's nothing really off limits as long as there's like some fermentable carbohydrates in them. Um, you can make alcohol from it. And if you can't, you can at least drop it in alcohol to extract Flame the flavors. The alcohol. Um, so mm -hmm. after a while of reading it, there was no big surprises anymore. But there were a couple of things where I just had, first of all, no idea what they are. Like uh, gentian um, is not a plant that was familiar to me. And then things like galangal uh, to have that in the spirit. What, what is gentian? What is that? It's a yellow flower that grows wild in French alpine meadows. Um, and then uh, apparently it's uh, an ingredient in many classic cocktails uh, in the Manhattan and in Groni, the old fashioned, none of which I know what is in them. Um, but because it's like a bitter plant, it... it um, It adds to Angostura bitters. Um, it's an ingredient there. But things like that, where like some of obscure herbs or ingredients that you sometimes might pick up on a label or see, like on, on gin bottles, you often have like um, drawings of the different ingredients. And I can make out like five of them usually. And most of them, I have no idea what's going on. And this book helps to sort of discover the other ones, like the, the stranger one, like Oris Root, for example, that's pretty key to gin making but i had no idea what it was mm -hmm. yeah i think for like for me i was really surprised they had this this thing called a kwandong which is an australian fruit um australia doesn't really have very many fruits so kwandong is like kind of this angry red fruit that's quite sour because it doesn't want to be eaten and basically nobody knows about it unless you're in australia um there i think it was a little bit of a stretch like it's it's just saying that some people are now using this to flavor liqueurs which i can imagine because it has almost a citrusy flavor with those those sour notes um but i was pretty impressed by um the level of research of the author that they had come at this really obscure australian plant And then I think the the most surprising thing to be in a drink for me was maidenhair fern. That just seems to make no sense that a fern would be mm -hmm. in. Yeah, that was that was quite interesting. You can make a syrup out of it, apparently. Yeah, I, I remember. I think I came, I when I like reread some parts today, I came across this and like you, it has this like capillary name, so it's some some mm -hmm. like, capillary effect. Although I don't really understand it because you pretty much just cook the stem of the fern in water with um, orange flower water and some sugar. And then you have um, a syrup that you can then use to put into um, all kinds of drinks. Previously said to treat coughs, jaundice and kidney problems. Probably not actually, but yeah. that's, that's what was believed in the 17th century. Um, did it, I mean, I know Alan for you, that's probably not a big, um, point, but did any of the cocktail recipes make you interested? Because it's, they are cocktail recipes spread throughout the book. Um, and there was one in particular, a very weird one that I try to, to find again now. Um, but did any of the cocktail syrups make you, uh, or cocktail, um, recipes make you interested in them and trying them? Or did y'all try any? I'm drinking one actually right now what are you drinking right now you're um the one that actually ties in between the uh, the, the last book that we read the braiding sweetgrass um with this book and i'm drinking a zubrovka vodka from poland with apple juice and on ice which is in here um, because this this vodka is flavored with bison grass um there's actually one um grass blade of bison grass in there um, and it tastes very nice together with apple juice. Um, it makes you forget that there's alcohol in there, so a little bit dangerous, um, but nonetheless quite tasty. And actually, I like to drink that before. I just was happy when I discovered it in the book, but that I think 
you Tegan, you to- you you showed me that drink one one faithful night on on a lab retreat. Um, <laughs> we were introduced yeah. to we introduced ourselves to apple juice and vodka to make it through the night. <laughs> I have to admit, I'm also drinking bison grass vodka with apple juice right now. This is kind of the the classic of. I'm I'm not somebody who likes to drink that much, so if I drink, I mostly drink gin and tonic or this because the flavors are very pleasing. It's it's kind of tastes like apple pie when you put the apple juice in with the the vodka. Something comes out in the bison grass. And thank you to our dear Polish friend who originally introduced us to that. Actually, mm-hmm. that's um, it's it is it's a pretty cool drink. I would say. Oh, I'm glad y'all are paying homage to braining sweetgrass as well. <laughs> yep, absolutely necessary. Yeah. There was something else that I found from from reading the book when it came to to the facts in there because there's not only things that are strictly related to alcohol and um, the author they say in the beginning that um, with alcohol you have so many like mysterious tales around it so many things that you can't really check so many ingredients where the the brewers or distillers they don't really admit to using them but other experts sort of tasted them in there so there's a lot of vagueness in there but when it comes to many of the other anecdotes and tales in this story um you can fact check them and at least i found that a couple of them um that either i knew before or that i then fact checked when i was reading the book because i wanted to write about it for our blog um they were all true like there were there was no like bad uh, exaggeration or simplification that would make it untrue um the things that are written in there were quite like as, as far i could tell very close to reality or to the truth with which i find always important with things like this that are potentially mostly read by sort of non-scientists um there's a tendency i find sometimes in these books that um they sort of become too they try to be too exciting or too fun and then start telling um like less than honest tales um Mm -hmm. and i i found in this book it's uh, completely the opposite yeah, it was a good mix of scientifically accurate and lighthearted and fun. This is actually something we should have in our rating system. Like, first is the kind of how interesting it was to read, and then second would be, but is it all bullcrap? And that would be, yeah, yeah. I think I think we know some books which which fail on the second, right? Yeah, yeah. What was the cocktail that you thought you had to? Oh, so I do have to say that the bison grass cocktail it does come up in um the book. But also the author suggests adding vermouth, which I disagree with. I don't know what vermouth is and I don't find <laughs> I don't intend to find out. Like what why would I put that <laughs> inside my bison? So bison grass, like the cocktail is basically just like one part um of the Zabrovka, so the vodka which has the bison grass in it, and one well, I don't know, half a part of apple juice or something like that. And this person has added vermouth. Yeah, I, I I also can't judge on that because I don't really know what vermouth is, which is not a good point for like this book talks a lot about this. Um, and it talks a lot about other spirits as well. So there's definitely, I think some of it is lost on the three of us who are non, non-expert and cocktail drinkers. I, yeah, I felt like it didn't clarify for me the different alcohols, but I think if I was drinking, if I did drink them, it would help clarify it. I think it's just because I don't have any familiarity with almost anything in the book. Yeah, same for me. Like I, I know some basics, but I'm not en- enthusiastic enough to to drink alcohol that I know all of the different things that go into cocktails. I'm just trying to find the recipe. There was like one recipe in there that was pretty much not meant to be um, remade. Um, I th- think it was in the beginning, but I can't find. It was like a um, 
Ah, yeah, no, I found it about um, earthworms. Um, so this is a drink that was made in the 1850s um, as a treatment for eos, which is um, a bacterial infection of the skin and joints um, from a Kentucky farmer, John B. Clark. Uh, and so in this recipe that's also in the book here, um, it, it says here, if it didn't cure people, it would certainly knock them back into bed for a few more days. Um, it's a one pint of hog's lard. A handful of earthworms. Wait, what is hog's lard? Like fat from a pig? Yeah. Fat from a pig, a handful of earthworms, a handful of tobacco, which turns it almost poisonous, I would say, four pots of red pepper, a spoonful of, um, of black pepper, a race of ginger, stew them well together, and when applied, mix some spirits of brandy with it. So you make like this really disgusting mix of fat and earthworms tobacco and and hot things like red black red and black pepper and then you just mix it with alcohol and drink it to cure yourself of this bacterial infection so this is one of the more strange recipes in the book but most i think all the others are meant to be consumed this one i mm. would not um in, in fairness this is within a historical note as opposed to being within kind of a recipe card that appears it's it's marked as yeah do not consume in the household yeah maybe if you applied that topically it would work like it would probably kill bacteria from the outside probably <laughs> i don't know about the, the worms themselves and the lard like i don't know maybe i mean it's like fat it's like nowadays you would probably use like um, um an oil-based fat Back then, you need pig-based fat. But that actually was part of one of my favorite parts of the book, that it has this little subsection called Bugs in Booze, and it has different stories related to different bugs in booze. So this one is called Earthworms, so it's discussing you know, adding your earthworms to your booze to um, cure whatever that bacteria is. But there was also like a discussion of um, tequila or mezcal, is it? The one that has the worm in the bottle, and how the author clearly believes that that is a tourist trap and a terrible thing to do. Um, and there's just like different stories throughout the book which somehow involved insects getting into alcohol or related to alcohol. And I found that, that section particularly charming. I mean, we're all um, plant communicators in, in some way, plant science uh, communicators. Um, did you find anything inspiring in the book? I mean, I already like milked it for one story that we published on the blog about witch wheat which i got from from the book and then did some further reading online did you find anything in there um that inspired you to follow up on i personally really liked the story about how the american grapes destroyed all of the european grapes and then saved them mm -hmm. there was this awful uh parasite was it let me see i think a fungus or um, an insect right I thought insect, but I'm not super sure. Uh, Aphid-like pest. Mm -hmm. There we insect. go. And they're bizarre because they're they have several generations of fertile bugs. Like they're born pregnant, basically. And mm. um, yeah, it says France's wine industry was nearly obliterated, which is why everyone was drinking absinthe. And um, they were able to figure out how to graft the European wines on to the American rootstock, even though some people think that that's kind of suspicious still and they prefer the originals and there's some in Chile where the, the fungus or the aphids never reached. Mm. I actually had a note to ask you about that, Ellen, from the point of view like as of Europe versus America because they also had later on this idea that 
European fruits became, or grape fruits at least, became very good for making wine because people were actively selecting them for a long time. Whereas in the Americas, they also had grapes, but they weren't being selected by people. They were being selected by birds instead. So they became like these small, bitter, like angry fruits instead of of lush winemaking fruits. Did you have any comments on that? As our token American here. <laughs> As a person who doesn't really drink, I have no opinions <laughs> on wine. So <laughs> I'm trying to start a war, but you're just like, nah, I just. I took Amy Stewart's word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are people who have like very, very strong opinions on all of this, right? Yes, exactly. I did like that, that kind of what you mentioned about the fact that because the wine got ruined, people started drinking absinthe. I like that that kind of theme came up quite a lot in the book. The idea that what people are drinking or see as the right thing to drink or the posh thing to drink was quite often based on like one historical glitch where something went wrong or there was a new law passed or some bacteria got into the wine or like something happened. And because of that, people switched their drinking habits entirely. And when we look at it from the modern perspective, it's just kind of seen as, oh, yes, this is you know, a classy drink or a better drink to drink. And it seems like there's really just strong historical reasons why we think that it's not about taste. It's not about actual quality. It's just about how the dice landed in, in the history of, of the alcohol industry. Yeah, I agree. I, I, what I also learned is that in the end, um, like people used whatever they could grow in in their vicinity to make alcohol from it. And so we got very similar things all across the world, especially when it comes to like the, the distilled liquors. Um, they can be made from corn, from rice, from wheat. Um, so there's sort of this, this unifying thing, like everybody makes a very similar end product um, based from what they ever they can grow locally, which I also found quite, quite nice. Yeah, I thought vodka was purely made from potatoes but I learned that it's also made from corn and other things, grains. Yeah. Yeah, me too. This is why I'm I'm almost more confused going out of this book about what alcohol is what. Like, <laughs> yes. who knew? Yes, that there's like very different vodkas sold and that the potato kind, what was it? I think the Polish ones are mostly potato and even the Russian ones, they like wheat, like winter wheat and stuff um, because it grows better and is easier to use and... Um, yeah. But then everybody's looking down on everybody else for using the wrong ingredients or, you know, the potato grown on the wrong side of the mountain or something like this. Yeah. I appreciated that Tito's vodka in Austin got a special shout out. Oh yeah. <laughs> One thing that I learned um was the the thing that sailors were giving an entire pint of rum per day um as sort of part of their rations. Um because then they could mix it with water. Um, it would sterilize the water. Um, it would be safe to drink. And then they also said that they would mix it with water, lime juice, and sugar, which essentially made them um, a daikiri, uh, a cocktail. Although um, it was not really strong enough. It was water, like a watered-down daikiri. But they, they sort of had their cocktails um, while being on shift, while sailing the world. And it also means that they were like constantly drunk, like more or less um, effectively, which I've, I've heard... Uh, um, on other places as well, that people were so much more drunk uh, in the old days because alcohol was very important to have safe drinking water. And so they would drink beer and they would drink wine and they would drink like watered down rum um, to whenever they had no access to fresh water, which meant that like the entire groups of populations were just drunk all the time, at least slightly. 
I think this story was also linked to the idea of how we got the I, the the concept of being proof, right? So the the sailors had a certain amount of alcohol that was in their ration, but this alcohol could be watered down and they had this method to test if the alcohol had been watered down too much. And they could do this by adding gunpowder and then setting the whole thing alight. And I think 56 was a cutoff. So if the alcohol had been watered down to less than 56%, then the thing was no longer flammable. There was just too much water in it to, to, to make a fire. And this is where we have the, the concept of proof from. And this I also didn't know before. I had no no concept of this. So yeah. again, I think this is like one thing that's really impressive about the the book that Amy Stewart really like artfully weaves these kind of different histories and different stories together. And you just, just keep on learning things as you go. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I have now in my memory of like fun facts around alcohol because i have a bottle that has 57 percent of alcohol a whiskey and um, before that i had like no idea why that was usually it's below 50 like around like 45 44 percent um but this one has more considerably and it's probably because of this like link to this idea of proof um i mean i just want to comment that like new year's is coming up you can probably get your hands on some sort of gunpowder or like fireworky thing i would really be happy if you did the experiment I think as a true scientist, you should boldly go and and try to set fires. I don't know. I would really like to keep my limbs attached. (laughs) Yeah. But your eyebrows are disposable. For litigation purposes, please don't actually do that at home. No, Tegan says, do it, do it. (laughs) But only Yoram. Only if your name is Yoram. I think it's very unlikely we have other Yorams out there. I have another topic that I want to bring up and discuss with you. I wonder how did you feel about like the sort of in my uh, my sort of ears casual mention of colonialism um very often it was like yeah when the european sailors discovered this and discovered that from the natives um to me glossing over uh like pretty horrible abuse and taking advantage of local populations living together with whatever they were growing at the time and then european settlers came in and exploited them did you like did you see it in a, a similar way or am i like exaggerating it i think you're exaggerating a bit i think there was like definitely chapters where she out and out mentioned how horrific and problematic it was like with the sugarcane chapter with the quinone chapter these themes did come up and there was even a point at the start where she said i'm not going to discuss this really upsetting history but be aware that it is there and you know you need to be kind of think about that so i don't think like often when she said, oh yeah, the the Franciscans came and found about this, she was still saying, yeah, but the indigenous population knew about it X thousand years before. So I don't think she was attributing the discovery historically to these colonial powers, but yeah, I'm not sure. What did you think, Ellen? Um, I think it's a crucial part of, I mean, a history of alcohol is basically a history of humankind, as we talked about. And so I think part, I noticed in the book that she said, so-and-so discovered this thing, which they didn't, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that I did, that did slightly great, but I do think she tried to give some details of the history as Tegan said. So I'm not sure if it's also a kind of um, age of the book thing a bit where I'm not sure when this was written, Yoram. I, What's the date? I don't know. I think quite recently. I think, yeah, in the last yeah. 10 years or something. 
but I would be lying if I know. Uh, 2013 was first publishing. Yeah. So. Okay. I mean, we're probably on the the edge there where like these discussions were not being had in the the wider public as far as discovered being changed right like this is maybe yeah i mean and, and she, not to justify her but it's it's not that she doesn't mention um uh, native discover like uh, discoveries of native people um and something that also links back to the braiding sweetgrass was where well, it was a lot about the indigenous population in sort of the northern united states if i re- remember correctly um and in the previous book, we didn't really talk about alcohol, right? Like it was so much about all of the different plants that uh, the native people lived together with and used in sort of in a recipro- reciprocal way and, and cared for them. And there was no mention of alcohol there. And in this book now, um, Amy Stewart says that for many sort of uh, indigenous tribes of, of Northern America, alcohol didn't really play a role until the European settlers came in and brought alcohol Um they didn't really use that and i found that yeah interesting to know because so many different like throughout the book you hear about like the south america um south american people um people in africa asian people european people all over the world they were using alcohol i think there was even something like from australian uh, indigenous people that they had um, some plants that they could use the the saps and had them ferment where even the birds could get drunk of it um um, but not Northern American indigenous people. And I found it sort of an interesting little factoid. But I mean, they, she she doesn't have an explanation. I don't know if there if there is an explanation. But I found it interesting to to sort of um, get my attention drawn to this this idea. I have to say, I I missed that. And also, like, I mean, so you mean like specifically kind of what's now the US and Canada, right? Yeah. That would be your the cutoff, yeah. I think in the maple sugar part, she talks about this and um, uh, maple syrup plays a big role in braiding sweetgrass and um, there is no mention of the fact that um, you can, because it has sugar, it would be very obvious to just ferment the maple syrup um, and then have a boozy um, liquid that you could drink and get drunk of. Um, and apparently... The indigenous people growing with um, maple trees, they would use the syrup, but they would not make alcohol from it. That tidbit reminded me of one of my other favorite parts of the book, which is that the animals are almost never drunk. Oh, yeah. Like you see those things on the Internet that are like these elephants ate a bunch of fermented fruit and then stumbled around. And that's nearly always fake because elephants don't do that. And also the strawberry tree, that's also mentioned in the book. So in um, Madrid, I think, there's a kind of famous statue of a bear eating a strawberry tree. And I was like, what is a strawberry tree? Like, this is not something we've ever heard of. And then strawberry tree is one of the the things that you can use to make alcohol. But again, like the story of the bear being drunk just isn't true. It's not a thing. Super disappointing, honestly. Yeah, I think the, the birds, the Australian birds were one of the few ones that would actually... Um, getting drunk and there's evidence for it there's the these was it the parakeets that they said that then had like there's people that make that pick up drunk parakeets and help them to sober up so they don't get eaten by other wildlife when when they're drunk um but yeah that but i also take that away from the book that drunk animals is not as much of a thing as people want to believe is there anything else that that got your attention from the book Ooh. The fact that you can make alcohol with tobacco, that just seems like the most horrible thing I've ever heard of. 
that's upsetting, I would say. Yeah, as somebody who has worked with tobacco, um, I mean, in research context, not as to, to grow it f um, on a farm, I still would not want to have it anywhere near my drink. Like, it doesn't smell nice. It's super sticky. It's nicotine. It's dangerous. It's it's toxic. It's it's really not something... It doesn't seem like a win to me, no. I would not want to have that in a drink. But, yeah. As another thing we learned from a book, there's a lot of things that people put in their drinks. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. There was one story that I really liked that was quite early on in the book, and it was about um, one of the, the botrous funguses, which, sorry, it, it infects grapes. And usually if it infects grapes, it kind of turns them grape, break, uh, turns them black, breaks the fruit. They just become disgusting and, and horrible, filled with fungus and, you know, inedible, and you can't use them to make alcohol. But, if you have just the right weather conditions where it's kind of wet and then dry and then wet in the right order and you don't have too much humidity, the fungus infects the grapes and makes them kind of dry out a little bit, but it doesn't actually fill them with fungus. So it produces a richer, sweeter grape, which can then be used um, to make alcohol, obviously, is that's the point. And this is actually one of the, the reasons there are certain um, French wines, which they're botrazized. Botrytized? Botrytized? So infected with the fungus? Yeah, so this is the grapes are infected with the fungus and that actually makes a better wine. And this is a quite a rare thing because you have to have the right weather conditions. So this is now a prized thing to have this special fungus wine. I, I once drank it with a, a, oh, yeah? a French like friend of the... like my Part of my extended family is French and a friend on, on that side, they once brought um, a bottle for, for dinner. Um, and it's a very sweet wine, um, so we had it for mm -hmm. dessert, but it was quite tasty. I mean, I, I know too little about wines to be to say anything uh, about the quality, but it was definitely like a very sweet, very intense wine, like a very concentrated flavor compared to a regular white wine. So I can I can say that these these wines are actually tasty. I mean, I love the idea. Like, fungus is generally seen as a, a pretty bad thing. I mean, obviously, they're a, they're a nice fungi that we, we, we use. And that was also part of the story, right? That yeast is actually probably one of the original organisms that we as humans domesticated. It wasn't a cow or a pig. Um, but, yeah, I really like this idea that something that, that causes destruction is also highly prized and makes super fancy wine. Yeah. Um, what I think one of the last things that I want to mention is all of the times Kumarin, um, I don't know if that's the right pronunciation in English, forgive me. Kumarin um, is found in so many different plants and things that I personally like to eat. Um, and it's a very dangerous compound um, that is actually like um, regulated by the FDA and also other bodies. Like it's in tonka bean, for example. It's in Woodruff, which is one of my favorite flavors in the world. Um, and so it's actually, mm. like in Germany, we make um, um, a drink from Woodruff, soft drinks and hard drinks. Um, you might have to explain what Woodruff is, because I think nobody outside of Germany eats or drinks. Yeah, it's like a, a little herb that has a very intense fragrance. You actually can smell it when you walk through the forest and they are um, sort of sprouting. You can smell it because it's so fragrant. And um, the tradition is that you pick it and then you mix it with um, with white wine or just with sugar and water, and you make sort of a, a drink from it that has this fragrance fragrance flavor. But um, the one of the flavor compounds in there is cumarin, and that's actually very toxic. Um, it can damage the liver. It's toxic to to small children and so on. 
Um, and I found this several times in the book. Like it's in, in, in tonka bean, which I quite like as a like dessert flavor, um, which means that also tonka bean is regulated as an ingredient. Um, and then there is um, wormwood, which you find in absinthe. Um, there you have also kumarin in there. So there's this like reoccurring thing of of flavors that I like that are all like linked to this toxic compound. And so now I wonder if I like, for example, also cinnamon, there's these two kinds of cinnamon. Maybe you've heard of that. Like there's a Ceylon cinnamon and uh, um, something with a C um, cinnamon. Um, and the Ceylon cinnamon is um, safe, but the other one has a very similar flavor, but contains high, uh, higher quantities of kumarin as well. Um, so, it's usually advised against eating a lot of it. So if you like cinnamon rolls and you use sort of the wrong kind of cinnamon and you put a ton of it on there and you eat a lot of it, you can actually get liver damage from it. Um, so that's something mm -hmm. that I I learned, but also got me worried a little bit. Although I think I, I should like the most dangerous compound in the book is probably the alcohol that's in all of the drinks that's damaging <laughs> yeah. the liver and not like the coumarin that's used to spice it um, or flavor it. Oh, it's also in the bison grass vodka, the coumarin. Yeah, that's. I think also like in in the United States, the bison grass vodka has like is regulated differently. There must be. They have to remove it. Yeah, they have to somehow remove it. So I think um, the United States is actually one of the safest places when it comes to coumarin because there's a lot of regulation on it, and many of the things that I like to drink or eat are banned, or you can only sell them when the coumarin has been removed which in Europe, you don't have to do that as much. Yeah, those plants and all the clever ways they've tried to get us not to eat them, and yet we continue. I mean, same with cocoa and coffee. Um, they both contain substances that are meant to deter animals from eating the seeds. And we were like, oh, that's tasty. I want to make chocolate <laughs> and coffee from it. You know what's the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Remember, this is a deliberate choice by the plant <laughs> yeah. to be spread by humans. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just found a cinnamon thing. So it's a Ceylon cinnamon is safe and cassia cinnamon um, is the one that is high in kumarin and that should be like consumed only in small quantities. So I, by coming to sort of the, the summary, I actually enjoyed reading this and I think it will get a place somewhere where it's easy to pick it up and look through it again. Because also I think I will draw inspiration for a couple more stories for the blog from this um, because there were a couple of cool plants or sort of cool um, stories about plants that uh, I don't know where else I would find them. So mm -hmm. um, in this respect, I found it very inspiring. Uh, I mean, I, I got, which I found interesting, more interested in the plants and the alcohols in the book. I In the beginning, I thought maybe... Yeah. I will read this and I will constantly be like, oh, I would like to try this drink or I would try to like uh, make this cocktail. And in fact, I didn't really. Like, that wasn't the thing that excited me most. Uh, the thing that excited me most was the history of all of these plants and how we use them and how we also use them for alcohol. Uh, so, yeah. Although I do I do want to try some more, this this rice wine. So, uh, shochu or so, soju? Like, the the question of the book was what is the most commonly drunk alcohol throughout the world or what's kind of the grains or the fruits and vegetables used most commonly for alcohol and it turns out that it's probably 
were probably drinking rice wine more than anything else in the world. And I have no knowledge of this, so I think I should be I should be getting into this. It's obviously popular. It's obviously a thing. Yeah. That was kind of what I, I thought I should try. Yeah. Jinro. Jinro is the, the company of Korean uh, soju, which is probably, apart from some, they say, the author says there's some Chinese brands where the sales are not disclosed, so possibly they sell more, but otherwise Jinro is probably the most sold alcoholic beverage across the entire world, like stripping past even things like Smirnoff. Mm. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to try that. So what are your verdicts of the book? Recommend or not? I'm going to send this book to one of my friends that likes both alcohol and plants. I felt a little bit alienated as a person who didn't drink and has no knowledge of any... I have some knowledge of the tastes in this book, but I think if you want to give it as a gift, give it to someone who likes both plants and alcohol. Yeah. I understand that. I think that's a, a fair warning. Yeah, and I have a, another book by Amy Stewart actually, which is about poisonous plants. It has it plays to more of my strengths of plant crimes. So that's wicked plants that A to Z of plants that kill, harm, intoxicate, and otherwise offend. And that sounds delightful. Yeah. Yes, it's much shorter. Did you start reading that one already? Yeah, I've read that one. I recommend it if you're interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, I think I need to get my hands on that. In the other book, does she go into details about like growing these plants? Because in this book, um, she mentions how you technically can very easily grow poppy, for example, but it's illegal. And she <laughs> like ex explicitly says, don't do it. Like It's bad. But she also says that it's very easy to do. Which is excessively suspicious given that earlier in the book, she talks about how in the prohibition days, people would send around these mixtures of um, like compressed fruit and like yeast sachets and say, warning, do not add the yeast and the fruit to water or you will accidentally produce alcohol. So it's like she knows this trick <laughs> and then she does the trick. That's true. But I wonder, is it the same in the toxic? like the book about toxic plants um i don't think so i can go get it real quick it's nearby but i don't think she tells you how to grow any of them let me see i have the book here it's designed similarly oh very pretty i think she runs her own printing press so she's able to make her own books okay i see Which, yeah she owns a bookshop at least i don't know if that means yeah mm -hmm. i mean i can't find uh, an editor label. oh no it's timber press is the editor but maybe that's her own thing Could very well be. Let me see. I'm not seeing any recommendations, though it gives the family habitat where it's native to and the common names. Though she doesn't say, I think, anywhere explicitly how to grow it. <laughs> Probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah. I, ju yeah. I just thought of it because, like, growing plants is also a big part in this book. Although it's not a full on guide to gardening, um, it has, like, a very um, basic overview over the conditions that you need and, and so on and which varieties are good. But I, if you really want to grow these plants, there's probably better books that go into more detail. Um, but still, it gives some basic idea about what to do when you want to grow these these different uh, plants and then maybe use them for, for uh, making alcohol. So what's, what's your verdict in terms of our rating system? I would say four out of five hemlock leaves. This wasn't uh, life-changing, honestly, but it was a fun light read. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree. I think four isolated chloroplasts out of five. It's not something that I want to sit down and read all at once, but it's definitely something that I 
would come back to and will come back to in the future to to find out more about some kind of weird plants. Yeah, I would also say four out of five, although I don't really know what I would want to be better in the book. I I quite liked it a lot, but five out of five to me sounds like a must read for anyone. And as you said, Ellen, it's not for anyone. Like if you don't care about spirits and alcohol, um, there's definitely uh, a, a lot in the book that you don't care about then. Um, so I, I would also give it four to five. I don't know what, like maybe um, barrels that were used once for one type of alcohol and now like is used to mature another type of alcohol because apparently that's also something that's done a lot, um, especially mm-hmm. with like whiskeys and bourbons and so on. Um, yeah, but overall I would definitely recommend it and I I found it a very uh, inspiring and very interesting. Like it actually, like I, I mean, I run a, bl- a plant website and this is about plant books. And I have to say that um, very often I don't care that much for the individual species. Whenever it turns into horticulture, I get less interested. Not with this book. Uh, even me as uh, somebody who thought was more interested in the alcohol side than the plant side actually found more joy in the plants than the alcohol in the book. So my I, I recommend it. So what are we going to read next? Uh, I think next we're going to read Lab Girl, which is by Hope Yaren. Um, we got a recommendation from a couple of different people via Instagram. So that seems like a pretty fun thing to go for. Uh, I'm excited. I've actually read this book, but a long time ago, and I don't remember the details. I just remember it was a good read. I also, I at one point, put it on my list uh, for this podcast here. Um, so I'm also excited to, to read it. Um, it will be... Like I, I expect it to be a little bit similar to the braiding sweetgrass, at least from the style. And I really enjoy braiding sweetgrass, so I'm really looking forward to Lab Girl as well. So with that, um, another book club done. Where can people get in touch with you, Ellen, if they want to talk about books or give you recommendations? <laughs> uh, you can find me at Ellen Earhart on Twitter and at Ellen Airplant on Instagram. And I'm working on plant crimes now. My goal is December, January for season two. So awesome. I'm looking forward to that. And if you want to find Yarm and I, you can find us at www.plantsandpipettes.com or at Plants and Pipettes on Facebook and Instagram or at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. Yeah. Um, thank you again for discussing, discussing uh, plant books. Uh, and thank you to our listeners to, for listening to us. Um, please, and for suggesting some books for us yeah suggesting some books and um, please if you like what we're doing here tell your friends it's the best way to get more people excited about the podcast um, and yeah that's it goodbye and talk to you soon see you later guys the opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.